1: Throughout this episode of Morally Indefensible, you'll hear dramatic recreations of
0: court transcripts,
1: edited for clarity.
0: The most controversial true crime story of the decade, based on today's bestseller, Fatal Vision. In the fall of 1984, NBC
1: turned Joe McGinnis' bestseller, Fatal Vision... Into a mini-series.
2: Millions of viewers watched the two-part series of Fatal Vision here on NBC. Sixty million on Sunday alone. Did you I see? Was, no, York? I was working yes. last night.
0: I saw bits and pieces of it, and I wish I had. Almost everybody did watch it. God knows what
2: kind of maniacal rage seized him then. But he came back to Colette and struck her a vicious blow with the club.
3: You're sitting there telling me that I killed my wife and kids.
0: I think so.
2: What is your verdict? Guilty. Guilty. Guilty.
1: I don't forget how I learned about the TV show coming out, but I remember we were concerned about it. Brian O'Neill was Jeffrey McDonald's appellate attorney. In episode four, he uncovered new evidence about the four intruders Jeff said murdered his family. And he was hoping to get Jeff a new trial. That movie shows Jeffrey murdering his family covered in blood. Yeah, on national TV.
2: So I contacted NBC... I said, you know, you might think about like fairness in the
1: criminal justice system. NBC invited O'Neill on the Today Show to make his case. Good morning to you, Mr. O'Neill. This docudrama wasn't titillating; it wasn't sensationalized. What was your problem with the airing of it? There are pending in the federal court several motions of seeking a new trial. Uh, those motions, in great detail, prove who did it, and it wasn't Dr. McDonald. It's our concern that when we get a new trial, we're not going to have a fair audience before whom to present it. Quick final note, no, Mr. O'Neill. have re- 10 seconds. Go ahead. Okay, uh, if you go down there, you'll find that uh, the man gentlemen, in the street knows everything about this case. Gentlemen, I've got to say thank you. Not long after that interview on NBC, O'Neill was home watching television when he saw a new advertisement for Fatal Vision.
2: On Saturday night, don't hesitate to see the, the movie that Jeff McDonald's lawyers have tried desperately to stop. God... Damn it, they set me up. I was was part of their pitch now.
1: Fatal Vision would become one of the most watched TV miniseries of all time.
2: Guilty. Guilty.
4: Guilty. We're back with more of our interview with Jeffrey
2: McDonald, Joe McGuinness. Did he hurt you with regard to appeals? I think it has, Larry. I think it has. And that's because they replay that miniseries every
5: time
0: I go to court.
6: Tonight, NBC concludes its rebroadcast of the movie Fatal Vision. McDonald is in a federal penitentiary serving three life sentences. Just last month, he was denied a request for a new trial in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Joe was served, and at first it seemed ridiculous.
1: This is Nancy Doherty, Joe's widow.
6: And he wanted a whole lot of damages.
1: Jeff sued Joe for $15 million.
6: Jeff said that Joe'd hurt his feelings and made his hair fall out, made him gain weight, and just, you know, been terribly mean to him. It it seemed almost farcical. I mean, we practically laughed about it. In fact, I think we did laugh, but only for about five minutes. How could you be sued by a murderer?
4: Reporter Joe McGinnis spent three years investigating Jeff McDonald, so that McGinnis might write the definitive book about him. It is called Fatal Vision. I would
3: like very much for it to be the best book I've ever done. And in order for that to happen, I'll need a period of total immersion in all facets of your past.
4: Fatal Vision is number one on the bestseller list.
5: Why would he cooperate in such a damning book?
3: He didn't understand that Joe McGinnis had this M.O. of worming his way into the confidence of somebody and then turning around and screwing him.
0: Joe McGinnis thinks he's found the key. New evidence he discovered after the trial. The drug called Escatrol. Among the side effects
3: of this drug are temporary psychosis, often manifested as a rage reaction. Well, obviously, I hope the book doesn't sell a copy. I wish the book would burn.
1: I'm Mark Smerlin, and this is Morally and Defensive. Chapter 6, How Many Lies Would You Tell to Get to the Truth?
0: I mean, of all the suits one could imagine, a suit by a murderer. And a, it, and so, it's as so though Charles a, Manson filed yeah, for libel. Yeah. Manson filed a jaywalking claim or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In
1: 1987, Joe McGinnis went on firing line to talk with William F. Buckley about the lawsuit Jeff had filed against him.
0: So the book comes out, and then he files suit. What about does he allege? Fraud, intentional infliction of emotional distress, breach of
1: contract. We do have a contract here. You might remember from episode one, Joe and Jeff signed a contract. Joe would get full access to Jeff and his defense team, and Jeff would get a third of the book's proceeds. He signed the release absolving me from any future litigation. But there was a catch.
3: His lawyer added a handwritten notation that
5: said, as long as the essential integrity of my life story is maintained.
0: Oh, boy. If they had me for that sentence, it wouldn't have been a case.
1: Jeff said that Joe had broken their contract, that he'd committed fraud by lying about what he was writing, and that fatal vision did not maintain the essential integrity of Jeff's life story.
0: Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to believe.
3: Yeah. If the integrity of his life is that he's a murderer.
1: That's,
0: uh, <laughs> that's a fact. I mean, that's, yes. that's a fact.
1: That's a fact. Yeah. But it was also a fact that Joe McGinnis found himself sitting across from Jeffrey McDonald in a federal courtroom in Los Angeles.
6: The first time, actually, I saw Jeffrey McDonald in person was at the civil trial. And he was sitting, Natalie dressed, at the uh, plaintiff's table.
1: Nancy Doherty again.
6: My blood ran cold. I just was like an icicle in my heart, seeing him. I thought it was like looking at evil.
4: Order in the court. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen.
1: This is a recreation of Jeffrey McDonald's lawyer's opening statement. His name was Gary Bostwick.
4: This is not a retrial of the criminal case that took place in 1979. It's not a case about the murder trial. It is a case about a false friend. What you are going to see is evidence of a person who betrayed a
1: friend. At the center of Bostwick's case were the many letters Joe had written to Jeff after the trial.
4: In those letters, you will be able to read the demonstration of friendship, love, support, that Mr. McGinnis communicated to Dr. McDonald.
3: He spent a summer making a new friend, and then the bastards come along and lock him up. But not for long, Jeffrey. Not for long.
4: But the defendant had decided that, in fact, this man that he had befriended was guilty of the crimes he was charged with. But he didn't tell Dr. McDonald that, and he has never told him that. Not even today. We are going to try to show that the reasons that he kept it to himself are quite clear. This is Jeff to Joe.
1: Tape one, side one. According to Bostwick, Joe needed Jeff. I am the
3: only one who hears these tapes.
1: To get those tapes. Hang as loose as you can. To get access to Jeff's condo.
4: Dr. McDonald trusted him enough to show him all the documents that he had in his condominium that had to do with the case.
3: In notes prepared for his own attorneys, he goes into great detail about his consumption of a drug called Escatrol.
4: To make a bestseller, Mr. McGinnis had to be on the inside. He had decided already that Dr. McDonald was guilty. He had to get everything he could out of him.
1: If Bostwick could show that Joe decided Jeff was guilty before he wrote Fatal Vision, he might convince the jury that Joe had breached the contract and committed fraud.
4: Mr. McGinnis, you decided sometime during the trial, or shortly after the trial, that Dr. McDonald was guilty of the crimes he'd been charged with, didn't you? Well,
3: decided is a very interesting word to use in that context. I would say that I didn't reach a final decision until I finished writing my book.
1: Bostwick already knew that Joe had been asked that question many times on his press tour for Fatal Vision.
0: Was there a point before the publication of the book at which you had concluded that he was guilty?
6: had found him, in your own heart of hearts, guilty.
2: At one point, you felt he was innocent, and the name of Helena Stockley turned you around, am I right? Well, it was
1: based actually and there was one story Joe told consistently. You've heard it before in this podcast. When Helena Stokely took the stand during the trial, Joe was in the court watching Jeff.
3: When this woman who he said had been one of the hippies who broke into the apartment that night, he was confronted by her in the courtroom. The absolute absence of emotion toward her, no anger, no hostility, no nothing. I said to myself for the first time, there's something very wrong with this man.
2: And that's when you began to turn.
1: In the courtroom, Bostwick reads another interview Joe gave to a newspaper on his book tour.
4: For McGinnis, that moment of truth came during the testimony of Helena Stokely whom the defense accused of being one of the murderous hippies. Did you ever tell anyone that?
3: No. I don't recall ever telling anyone that I decided that he was guilty when Helena Stokely took the stand. You know, there's a difference, Mr. Bostwick, between what your head tells you and what your heart wants to believe. I was trying awful hard to believe that this guy hadn't done that thing.
1: Now, Bostwick hands Joe a letter he'd written to his editor, Morgan Enchirkin, in 1981, two years before Fatal Vision was even published.
3: Dear Morgan, I spoke to him last night, and he kept referring to, quote, our book, the ice is getting thinner, and I'm still a long way from shore.
4: What did you mean that the ice was getting thinner, and you were still a long way from shore? Well, I meant that McDonald's gradually growing
3: awareness The fact that this book wasn't necessarily going to come out the way that he wanted to was something that could eventually turn into a problem. So you were keeping things from him? Always. Well, If not always, frequently. An author will permit a subject to continue to feel that the subject is manipulating the author, sure. Mr.
4: McGinnis, I'm not asking about other authors, I'm asking about you. I think that he had no right to know what my private opinion
3: was at that time.
4: I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you if you weren't trying to hide it from him. Well, hide is your word. My word is reserve the
3: right to my own opinion.
1: But Joe did more than hide his opinion about Jeff's guilt. Bostwick hands Joe another letter he wrote to his agent, Sterling Lord, just before Fatal Vision came out.
3: The irony of all this is that so far, McDonald has not even seen the book and still has no idea how mad he's really going to be.
1: Joe and his agent were looking for a way to launch Fatal Vision into the world with a bang. I think
3: your 60 Minutes idea may be best.
1: 60 Minutes would be the first news show to interview Jeffrey McDonald before Fatal Vision came out. At that time... Joe still hadn't given Jeff a copy of the book to read.
3: For not the first time, but I hope for the last time, you will be sent a copy of the book when there is a copy of the book to send.
1: But Joe had given a copy to Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes.
4: He gave the manuscript to 60 Minutes long before the book was to be published.
1: Then, Joe took advantage of Jeff's ignorance.
4: By all means, hype the book,
2: tell the world.
1: He asked Jeff to sit for an interview with Mike Wallace the trap was set. You might remember how that turned out.
2: I also wasn't taking Escatrol. It's in your notes, again, in your own handwriting. Three to five capsules of Escatrol Spansules. That's speed.
4: All the way down to the end of the process, Mr. McGinnis continued to delude and misrepresent what was going on.
1: Finally, Joe sat down with Mike Wallace, too, to say publicly for the first time what he'd hidden from Jeff.
0: Thumbnail sketch of Jeffrey McDonald, the man you know. Charming. Engaging and absolutely ruthless and beyond morality.
6: Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane
1: Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise. The island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Lawyer Gary Bostwick had presented evidence that Joe McGinnis had lied to Jeffrey McDonald while writing Fatal Vision. Now, he had to convince the jury that Joe had lied in the book itself.
4: Mr. McGinnis, how much amphetamine can cause psychotic rage? Uh, I don't don't know in milligrams.
1: Joe's theory in Fatal Vision was that Jeffrey had attacked his family after a few weeks of taking a popular diet pill, Escatrol. Bostwick hands Joe a copy of the book and points to a section.
4: Mr. McGinnis, do you see in the book where it says, a toxic psychosis may occur after periods of weeks? That's right.
1: Now Bostwick pulls out a medical book, the same book Joe used as a reference for fatal vision.
4: Would you read that portion? A
3: toxic psychosis may occur after periods of weeks to months of
4: continued use. It says weeks to months of continued use. That's correct. You left that out of fatal vision in the quote, didn't you? Sure. And you didn't put ellipses to show that you left out something at the end of the sentence, did you?
3: Fatal vision does not include the complete sentence or paragraph. That's correct.
1: Bostwick didn't end up finding a lot of lies in fatal vision. But he did prove that Joe McGinnis had left out an ellipses. Bostwick's grueling cross-examination of Joe McGinnis lasted four and a half days. Now it's time for Joe's defense. This is a recreation of Joe's lawyer's opening statement to the jury. His name was Daniel Kornstein.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, it wasn't Joe McGinnis who convicted this murderer. It wasn't Joe who sentenced him to three consecutive life terms, the harshest sentence possible. But the murderer can't sue the jury or the courts or the Supreme Court, so he lashes out at the author of the book. If a convicted murderer can sue an author who writes a book that says what the jury did in convicting him was correct, then who is free from being sued about what they write? Joe McGuinness's craft, his duty, his obligation, as the evidence will show, is to the
1: truth. Kornstein argued that the truth in the case had already been established, and he wanted the jury to remember just who was suing his client. So he called Jeffrey McDonald to the stand.
5: Isn't it true that on February 17th, 1970, your pregnant wife, Colette, was found dead with a fractured skull. 16 stab wounds from a knife in her neck and chest. And 21 stab wounds from an ice pick in her chest. That's true. In 1979, weren't you unanimously convicted by a jury for her murder? That's what the jury said, yes. And on February 17, 1970, isn't it true? that your five-year-old daughter, Kimberly, was found dead with a fractured skull, a broken nose, and eight to 10 stab wounds from a knife to her neck?
2: Yes, that's true. In
5: 1979, weren't you unanimously convicted by a jury for her murder? Yes, that's true. And haven't your convictions been confirmed by all of the courts, including the Supreme Court?
1: Yes, that's true. Next, Kornstein wanted to show the jury that Joe McGinnis wasn't the only one who breached the contract.
5: You never denied Mr. McGinnis access to any information about the case. Isn't that true? Yes, that's true.
1: In that contract, Jeff granted Joe access to everything involved with his defense during and after the trial. That was the deal.
5: But there was one exception, wasn't there? Not that I recall.
1: Kornstein knew that Jeff had taken a polygraph test soon after the murders. Joe wanted to see that test and wrote to Jeff in prison to ask for the results. Jeff responded with an audio tape.
5: Cleve, I think, Baxter, he hooked me up to the machine and I began going over my sexual history. It was very bizarre. He started talking about had I ever had sex with women other than Colette, and I answered that. And then he asked had I ever had sex with men. And I stopped him, and I said, I don't understand what we're doing here. Isn't it true that Cleve Baxter did give you a complete polygraph on April 23rd, 1970? That is not my recollection at all. Isn't it true that in the polygraph examination you denied involvement in the murders? I don't recall him asking me questions like that. Isn't it true? that Cleve Baxter told you that the polygraph showed deception on your part. No, that is not true. Isn't it true that when you denied authorization to Mr. McGinnis in February of 1983, you were trying to cover up the results of the polygraph examination? No, that is not true. We call Cleve Baxter to the stand. Mr. Baxter, did you ask McDonald any questions about his extramarital sexual activities? No. Did you ask McDonald any questions about homosexual activities? None whatsoever. Do you recall what McDonald's responses were to the questions about whether he had inflicted the wounds that led to the death of his family?
0: The answers were no to each of these questions.
5: All right. Now, would you tell us the conversation that you had with McDonald about the results of the polygraph that day?
0: I would have told him that I could not be of help to him in his defense because he had failed the polygraph test. And what was his reaction? We had a very, I would state, a very dignified conversation after the end of the polygraph procedure. I brought up an interesting point, and this does stick to my mind because it's not anything that I would do often during polygraph testing. I, uh, our conversation led into my interest in Eastern philosophy, and if there were substance to the idea of karma, the fact that you have to pay for your crimes in this lifetime, perhaps in another existence. It might be better that he clear this up in this lifetime rather than to wait until later. And it was interesting because I got a very puzzled reaction from him. And he asked me, do you really believe in that? And I said, yes, I think possibly it could be so. That was the end of the conversation.
3: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.
2: My name is Joseph Wamba. I'm a writer, and I was a cop for 14 years with LAPD. And what else? In
1: 1979, Joseph Wamba was one of America's most successful true crime writers.
2: I read about the Jeffrey McDonald case when it first happened, of course. The savage overkill of Jeffrey McDonald's wife, and especially the two young children. It was just uh, such a monstrous job that was done on them. That was unusual.
1: Before Jeff sat down with Joe McGinnis, he sat down with this Joe.
2: My wife and I were contacted, must have been by his attorney.
1: Womba was just the kind of guy Jeff was looking for, a best-selling writer with a big audience.
2: And we met at a restaurant in Long Beach. And in Grizzly detail. He told uh, basically the story that, uh, that had appeared in all the news accounts. It was preposterous, the story he told, and in a kind of uh, detached monotone. When he told about the wounds inflicted on those two little children, he wasn't emotional at all. Just the way we might have talked about uh, the salad dressing. I was being auditioned to be a writer of his story, the way he saw it. He wanted to have some kind of control. I could see that. And I told him point blank, no one gets control over the books I write. Nobody. And this will be my story. I will listen to everything you have to say and I will consider it. I will do a complete investigation and you won't even read it until the book's published. If you want the truth, that's what it's going to be. When we left that meeting, Dee, my wife, said, that guy is very handsome and charming, but he's guilty as hell. I don't believe I ever heard from Jeffrey McDonald after that. My next contact with anything involved in this case was when Joe McGuinness, Contacted me.
1: Joe had already signed on to write the book.
2: Joe seemed astonished that I believed McDonald was guilty, and he said, "Well, for a man to commit a crime like that, what was done to his children? He said he'd have to be as, as evil and conscienceless as Hitler." And I said, uh, "Joe, I don't know." anything about evil, and I would never say that Jeffrey MacDonald, or anyone like him, was evil. I said, he's a sociopath. So I said, sociopath? Do you know anything about sociopaths? And he admitted that he did not. He doesn't have the mechanism that you do. Joe still left me that day, I believe, convinced that he was writing the story of an innocent man. He believed with his heart and soul. And that's why he signed that stupid agreement. I couldn't believe that he would have done that. But then he needed someone to testify for him in the civil trial.
4: called to the stand, Joseph Wambaugh. Mr. Wambaugh, is it ever alright for the storyteller to lie to the subject of the true story, the non-fiction story?
2: And I said yes. If I have to tell uh, a Jeffrey McDonald uh, yes, uh, I believe you, Jeff, to get the truth of the story, well then I think I would do it. And the fact that I told an untruth to get the truth, wouldn't have kept me awake. I said, if you're going to tell a story like this, you, you have to dedicate yourself to it. And that's what's important.
1: For Wamba, the truth trumped Joe's lies when it came to murder. But not for the jury in the civil trial. They couldn't reach a decision. One juror reportedly said that she wanted to find Joe, quote, millions and millions of dollars to set an example for all authors, to show that they can't tell an untruth, end quote. For Jeff, it was a victory.
2: You name it, Joe McGinnis lied about it. Um, He is a known liar, and that has
0: now come forward...
1: Now Joe was facing a retrial, so he reached out to a group of people he thought would help. Other famous journalists. Like Janet Malcolm from the top of our series.
6: So, so you think there will be another
1: trial? Janet visited Joe on his porch in Williamstown, Massachusetts, not long after Joe came home from the civil trial.
3: I think that a, a new trial is a distinct
1: possibility.
6: Back there, same judge? Same
1: judge, different jury. Hi.
6: Hi.
1: Hi. Nancy Darty was there, too. What do you remember from that period?
6: Well, I don't want to get into all the specifics, but... It was just uh, horrible.
1: Yeah, I can tell from your, your body language.
6: It was, I'm really, it was really just, it trashed our lives for, for years. And then, of course, Janet Malcolm trashed our lives further. So uh, let's talk about it later.
1: Later, as in next week, on Morally Indefensible. Morally Indefensible is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. This episode of Morally Indefensible was produced by Zach Hirsch, Julia Batero, Ryan Zweikert, and Kevin Shepard, with help from Jesse Rudoy and Daniel Elliott. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling, and Danielle Elliott. Alessandro Santoro is our associate producer. Our archive producer is Brennan Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking is by Amy Gaines. Kenny Kusiak did the music and mix. Sound design by Kenny Kusiak, Ryan Swikert, and Zach Hirsch. Additional music by John Kusiak and Marmoset. Our title track is Promises by The Monophonics. Voice reenactments by Logan Stearns, Jesse Rudoy, Chris Ferry, and Nick Dietz. Legal review by Linda Steinman and Jack Browning of Davis Wright Tremaine. Special thanks to Sean Twig, May Ryan, Luke Malone, Brian Murphy, Joe Langford, Peter Schmuel. Diana DiCilio, Bob Stevenson, Christina Misavage, Bob Keeler, and Errol Morris. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, find us on Instagram and Facebook at Morally Indefensible, and Twitter at Morally Indef, M-O-R-A-L-L-Y-I-N-D-E-F. If you've enjoyed Morally Indefensible, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening.